Hello and welcome to the Hanseatic League, a podcast by the History of the Germans. Episode 16, Decline and Fall, Part 2. 1531 to 1535. A period of just four years is enough to capsize Lübeck's position as the diplomatic heart of the Baltic Sea, the General Secretary of the Hanse, the ally of both the King of Denmark and the King of Sweden, and an early member of the Schmalkaldic League. How can that happen? As Edward Gibbon would say, history, in fact, is no more than a list of crimes of humanity, human follies and accidents. But before we start, enjoy this moment of zen, when you are undisturbed by your presenter extolling the benefits of online mental health services, recruitment companies or beard trimmers. I'm unsure what is more painful, the humiliation of the presenter pretending to like things he or she clearly is never going to use, or is it the embarrassment of hearing someone who you have grown to respect debasing himself or herself? Luckily, that does not happen here on the History of the Germans. This podcast is entirely funded by the generosity of our patrons, who have signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans, or on my website, historyofthegermans.com slash support. And thanks a lot to Kevin C., Carl T., Tim B., Carlos Alonso C., and his son, Eduardo A., for his patience, or should I say, lack of it. I suppose it would be easier to draw attention from youngsters if I discussed modern-day German Kaisers, like Tony Cruz. Last week, we surveyed the lay of the land in the early 16th century in preparation for the dramatic events that led to the fall of Lübeck from Queen of the Baltic to wealthy, but ultimately no longer significant, imperial-free city. And, as we are squatting in the 16th century, we should do as the Romans do, which can only mean that this episode should take the structure of a Shakespearean tragedy, with a sheer innumerable host of characters, complex plot lines, and a dazzling switch-around of locations. So, let's begin with the dramatis personae, the people of Lübeck. There's Jürgen Wollenweber moderately successful merchant, by force of circumstance and oratory the de facto ruler of the city of Lübeck, Protestant. Marx Meyer, former smith, now commander of the army and navy of Lübeck, a sharp dresser, Protestant. The Danes, his ex-king Christian II, perpetrator of the Stockholm bloodbath, exile in the Low Countries, brother-in-law of the Emperor Charles V, Catholic for political reasons only. Frederick I, King of Denmark and Norway, successor of Christian II and current ruler, thanks to election by the Danish Council of the Realm and support of the city of Lübeck. Catholic, but lenient on the spread of Protestantism. Christian, Count of Holstein and Duke of Schleswig, son of Frederick I, ardent Protestant. John, younger son of Frederick I, a minor. Christopher, Count of Oldenburg, a mercenary general, distantly related to the Danish royal house. The other princes. Charles V, ruler of Spain, Austria and the Low Countries, Holy Roman Emperor and master of an empire where the sun never sets. Brother-in-law of Christian II, ardent Catholic. Gustav Vasa, leader of the Swedish revolt against Danish rule following the Stockholm bloodbath, now king owes his crown and a lot of money to Lübeck, Protestant. Duke Albrecht of Mecklenburg, Prince, Catholic. Henry VIII, K. 
King of England. Act 1, Scene 1, Summer of 1531, Schloss Gottorp, Schleswig-Holstein, favorite residence of King Frederick I of Denmark and Norway. News arrive that Christian II, the ex-king of Denmark and Norway, after eight years of plotting and scheming, has finally convinced his brother-in-law, the Emperor Charles V, to give him an army to regain his crown. Initial reports indicate that Christian had hired about six to 7,000 mercenaries in northern Germany and was negotiating with the merchants of Amsterdam over shipping to Denmark. Frederick I is concerned about this, not just because of the size of the army that is about to be unleashed, but also because he knows Christian still has support in Denmark. Christian II had aggressively suppressed the nobility which endeared him to the peasants and, even to a degree, the burghers of the major cities, Copenhagen and Malmö. So Frederick I deploys his army to Jutland, where he believes his nephew will land his troops and kick off the peasant rebellion. And he searches far and wide for allies in his struggle. He tries to convince the emperor and the Dutch to abandon Christian II, whose Catholic convictions he argues are paper thin, and that he had proven to be a brutal tyrant. But as a plan B, he looks for direct naval support. There is a Danish navy now, but still vastly inferior to the forces of the Hanse and the Dutch, so he writes to the various Hanseatic cities asking for help. The response he gets is broadly positive. Lübeck under its new populist ruler Jürgen Wollenweber is most supportive. They promise to send a fleet in exchange for restraints on Dutch shipping through the Öresund. Messengers are going back and forth between Gottorp and Lübeck as both sides try to hammer out a deal. Act 1, Scene 2 October 24th, 1531, the flagship of Christian II heading out of the port of Amsterdam. Christian II had indeed mustered an army of 7,000 German mercenaries, the legendary Landsknechte. The city of Amsterdam, pressured by their overlord, the Emperor Charles V, had given him a dozen or so ships to bring his troops across to Denmark. Now Christian II, for all his faults, was no fool. He knew that his uncle had garrisoned all the major towns and fortresses in Jutland and that an attack there, this late in the year, would be doomed to failure, even if the peasants would rise up for him. Once the ships are out of Amsterdam, Christian II revealed his grand plan. Not to Denmark, but to Norway. Specifically to the Norwegian capital of Oslo was their convoy to go. Instead of a 300-mile sail to Jutland, they were now meant to go nearly twice as far and far out into the North Sea. The Dutch sailors were anything but best pleased about this change of plan, but they were out at sea with 7,000 armed men. So they went along with the plan. But they did not have to go far. The autumn storms that regularly batter the North Sea in October and November hit them on day two of the journey. The fleet split up and ships were blown far and wide. Some returned home quickly, others sought refuge in English ports, but many sank, including the ship that carried the soldiers' wages. As the storm raged, the captains had to order the heavy cannons to be thrown overboard so that the four ships and thousand men who made it to Oslo at the beginning of November arrived without money and without siege weapons. But the burghers of Oslo welcomed him warmly. 
they had little love for Frederick I, who had never bothered even to visit his Norwegian kingdom. And Norway was still staunchly Catholic, growing concerned about the spread of the Lutheran ideas across Denmark and the Baltic Sea. So, on November 29, 1531, Christian II was crowned King of Norway. That was nice, but he did not control much of Norway beyond Oslo. Without cannon and with just about a sixth of his original force, Christian had no chance to dislodge the garrisons of the main castles in Norway. But otherwise, he was in good shape. He had a major bridgehead in his lost kingdom, winter was coming, and that meant any form of retaliation by the Danes would have to wait until the spring. And that was enough time for the Emperor Charles back in the Low Countries to muster another army and send them across to resume the original plan. Act 1, Scene 3, March 1532, Copenhagen. Now, Frederick I had been completely surprised and shocked by Christian's daring move on Norway. He now needed the help of the Hansa cities even more than before. Their navies were the only ones who could prevent a landing of imperial troops in Norway, and he needed them to bring his own forces across to besiege Oslo and to capture his obstinate nephew. So, he invited representatives of the major Hansa cities to Copenhagen to discuss terms for their support. Lübeck, Wismar, Rostock, Stralsund, Danzig and the Livonians all showed up. The leaders of Lübeck, Jürgen, Wollenweber, dominated the discussions. He insisted that any major support would be predicated on a Danish commitment to close the Öresund to Dutch shipping. The Hansards lined up behind the Lübeck position but insisted that they have privileges of free passage for themselves and all their wares. Wollenweber did not support these proposals. In fact, he gets increasingly insistent that traffic through the Öresund should be constrained as far as possible. Because Wollenweber thought he smelled a rat. If, for instance, Danzig has free transport rights across the Öresund, what stops their Dutch associates from hoisting the Danzig flag as they approach Helsingburg, pretending that they're sailing on behalf of a Hanse merchant? Now, the other cities too believe there are darker forces at work. As they see it, Lübeck wants as little traffic through the Öresund as possible because that traffic would then have to go via their own harbour and the river route to Hamburg and out from there. Frederick I gets more and more exasperated with the debates and the delays. He needs the Hansa navies now, or it will be too late. By early May, the other Hansards leave the negotiations as they cannot see how any of this could come to a fruitful conclusion. Only Lübeck is left at the negotiation table. Frederick I is forced to concede a full blockade of all Dutch shipping, no ifs, no buts, in exchange for the city's help. Wollenweber, it seems, has scored his first great diplomatic victory. Act 1, Scene 4, May 1532, Schloss Gotthorp, the secret office of Frederick I. Frederick I is not just exasperated, but also a much better tactician than our blustering friend Wollenweber. All throughout these negotiations in Copenhagen, Frederick had remained in touch with Charles V and the Dutch, looking for a way to reconcile their differences. And now that had become even more urgent. Lübeck's demands had been completely impossible to agree to. The toll on the Ursund 
and the trade in Copenhagen and Malmö that was associated with it were the main sources of income for the Danish crown. Closing the Öresund pretty much for everyone would have been economic suicide for the kingdom. No Danish king could ever agree to such conditions. And Frederick I hadn't, at least not in writing. He had always made clear to Wollenweber that any such commitment would require the consent of the Council of the Realm, which obviously would be forthcoming shortly. So, legally, Frederick I was able to do what he did. He made a deal with the Dutch. In exchange for them withdrawing support for Christian II, he would keep the Ursund open for their shipping. That deal prevented any imperial troops from coming across to support Christian II in Norway. Act 1, Scene 5, Summer 1532, The Kattegat Wollenweaver and his great warrior friend Marx Meyer did not know anything about the deal Frederick I had made with the Dutch, obviously. So the navy of Lübeck crosses the Öresund and sets up the blockade of Oslo, and they bring the 6,000 troops in the pay of Frederick I across. There was a bit of fighting back and forth, but on July 1st, Christian II accepted defeat. He was offered safe passage and boarded a ship for Denmark. There he was immediately arrested and put in jail in Sonderburg Castle. The Danish succession crisis was over. Act 1 Scene 6. Late summer 1532, Lübeck, the office of Jürgen Wollenweber. Success in war would usually result in celebrations and, given Lübeck's role in the wine and beer trade, these could have been quite fun. But I'm afraid the finest Sancerre Wollenweber was gulping down at the festivities got stuck in his throat when his captains told him that they saw many a Dutch ship sailing unimpeded past the great fortresses of Helsingborg and Helsingur. It became clear that Frederick I had tricked him. It had also become clear that there was little he could do about it. Frederick I was firmly back in control of Denmark and Norway. Christian II was in jail and the emperor had lost interest in the Scandinavian mess. Wollenweber was nothing if not stubborn. The Dutch were the cause of the decline of Lübeck's fortune. Therefore the Dutch had to be thrown out of the Baltic and if nobody was going to help then it would be Lübeck on its own that would do the deed, cost what it may. A war intended not just to harass Dutch trade, but to bring it to a complete halt meant it wasn't enough just to send out privateers to capture Dutch ships. Privateers are businessmen, who would make a rational calculation about the risk and return of attacking a large, well-armed Dutch merchantman, and that would normally mean they wouldn't do it. What Wollenweber wanted was to attack all the Dutch ships, including the large merchantmen, including the convoys and even including their large warships. We are now in a period where we have purpose-built warships carrying cannons. If you want to see an impressive example, go to Portsmouth Marine Dockyards and visit the Mary Rose, launched in 1511 and able to fire a broadside with its 78-plus guns. If Lübeck wanted to attack those, they needed their own warships and navy commanders who attacked not for profit, but for glory. And these were expensive. Fortunately, the treasury of the city of Lübeck had recently been replenished with all the gold and silver from the church decorations. And that popish frippery amounted to 48 tons in total, enough to keep the war going for a while. 
Act 1, Scene 7, A Few Months Later, Stockholm, The Royal Palace. As so often, at the end of the money there was still a lot of war left. 48 tons of gold and silver sound a lot, but even that can run out quickly when waging major naval operations. Woolenweaver needed other sources of cash and guess what? There was one. You remember Gustav Vasa, King of Sweden? When he was fighting for his crown in 1522, he had called upon the city of Lübeck for help, help they were willing to provide, but at a price. And that price had not yet been paid, largely because Sweden was a mess of smouldering ruins and slaughtered civilians after Christian II's invasion. But now, eight years later, sure, Gustav Vasa should be able to pay them back. Wollenweaver, in his famous diplomatic manner, wrote a harsh letter to Gustav Vasa, asking for his cash, and now. The Vasa family are famous for their temper, and Gustav was no exception. Getting a condescending letter from a grubby merchant asking for money was just the thing that could send Gustav Vasa into a rage, and rage he did. Instead of sending money to Lübeck, he ordered all their privileges in Sweden revoked and opened his harbours to all Dutch shipping. And that is the end of Act 1. Just look at how far we've travelled in these just 36 months. At the start of the play, Lübeck had it all. The King of Denmark and the King of Sweden were friends, owed them their crowns and were firm allies. The Hanse was functioning as a coordination mechanism, commanding at least some basic loyalty between the cities. Now, all these relationships had become fragile, teetering on the verge of open hostility. So let's start Act 2 and see what Wollenweber can do to turn it all around. Act 2, Scene 1, April 10, 1533, Schloss Gottorp. Frederick I, King of Denmark. King of Norway, 61 years of age, victorious in the struggle with Christian II, lay dying. By his bedside are his two sons. The oldest, Christian, Duke of Schleswig-Holstein, 30 years old. He had been at the Diet of Worms and had heard Martin Luther speak, and he liked what he heard. So he introduced the new faith in his lands and made Lutheranism the state religion in Schleswig-Holstein in 1528. The younger was John, just 12 years old and, so far, a blank canvas. The Danish Council of the Realm did not want Christian, the Protestant Duke of Schleswig-Holstein, to succeed his father. The members of the council were of the highest nobility in Denmark and wanted to retain the old faith, if not for reasons of theology then, because their younger brothers had been bishops and the abbots of the rich monasteries. But if Christian of Schleswig-Holstein was out, who should become king? They would have elevated little John, who with a bit of encouragement could be made a good Catholic. But that wasn't easy given the boy's formidable mother and his older brother, both of whom could have demanded guardianship over little John. So the council decided to go it alone. Denmark was not to have a king at least until John was an adult. Act 2, Scene 2 Late spring 1533, Lübeck, the offices of Jürgen Wollenweber. The death of King Frederick I, the man who had double-crossed him, was the second bit of good news for Wollenweber. The other was that he had finally been formally elevated to Burgermaster. What made it even better was that the death of the old monarch 
came with a neat little succession crisis built in. Surely, the ardent Protestant Christian of Schleswig-Holstein would not allow the Danish royal council to bypass him and put a Catholic pretender on the throne instead. Christian must be a natural ally of the staunchly Protestant city of Lübeck. And this would frankly not be the first time that the city on the Trave had selected a Scandinavian ruler. But Christian did not respond to Wollenweber's letters, though he made it abundantly clear that he would rather forsake the crown of Denmark than owe it to Wollenweber and the city of Lübeck. Wollenweber could not understand, but Christian was so adamant. He offered him his crown, and he was a Protestant to boot. What was it that stopped Christian from asking for Lübeck's support? Did he regard Wollenweber as an untrustworthy oik who behaved like an elephant in the proverbial china shop? Well, possibly. But much more importantly, what Wollenweber had again not understood was that no Danish ruler could ever accept the price of his support, a closure of the Öresund for most shipping. Any king who did that would be removed after any short period, because without the tolls from the Öresund there was no money in the Danish treasury and so no chance to keep this unruly kingdom together. Act 2, Scene 3 Light relief. The summer of 1533, the city of Rye, England. Now, whilst all this is going down, the war against the Dutch is still raging. The fight had moved beyond the Baltic and disrupted shipping all over the North Sea. Max Meyer, who had made his first appearance as a mercenary in the army that fought Christian II in Norway, had now risen to the command of one of Lübeck's largest warships in the North Sea. Fortuna had been smiling on him and Marx Meyer had managed to capture a Spanish and two Dutch ships. But now he had run out of food and drink. So he decided to go into the harbour of Rye on the south coast of England. Swollen with pride over his success, he entered the town on horseback with his men, all wearing the fanciest clothes he had taken from the captured enemy ships. It took little time for the citizens of Rye to find out that what these privateers were wearing were mainly English rather than Dutch or Spanish goods. Marx Meyer was arrested and brought to the Tower of London. The Hansa merchants in the steelyard intervened with King Henry VIII on Meyer's behalf and the king asked to see this man. We are in the year 1533, which, for you English listeners, is the year where Henry VIII officially married and crowned Anne Boleyn, which, as we all know, kicked off the Reformation in England. Now, Marx Meyer, representative of a Protestant power in the Baltic that was at war with the subjects of the Emperor Charles V, who was in turn his enemy, suddenly seemed more useful at court than in jail. Moreover, Marx Meyer is a man who likes to dress up and to party, something that endeared him to that massive codpiece that was Henry VIII. By the end of the year, Meyer returns to Lübeck claiming he has made an ally in England and that things should brighten up soon. Early 1534, Schleswig-Holstein. Now, Marx Meyer was the man hanging around doing nothing. The whole winter 1533-34, he was devising plans how to foster Lübeck's position. And he came up with possibly the worst one imaginable. As soon as the weather allowed, Meyer, with a small contingent of soldiers, headed out to Schleswig-Holstein, the lands of Count Christian, and engaged in the usual plundering, raping and pillaging. And that was the last nail in the coffin of any potential alliance between Christian 
and the free and imperial city. Act 2, Scene 5, Spring 1534, Hamburg. Now, despite the splendid adventures of Marx Meyer in London, the naval campaign against the Dutch was going badly. The whole thing was extraordinarily expensive and the city had now completely run out of money. Plus the merchants of Lübeck had to watch their fellow Hansards from Danzig and Livonia doing great business in Flanders whilst they were banned from going there. Even Hamburg, usually joined at the hip with Lübeck, refused to participate in the Dutch embargo. So Wollenweber was dragged, kicking and screaming, to the negotiation table. He, as well as many of the other Hansa cities, had gathered in Hamburg to discuss possible solutions with representatives of the Dutch cities. And Wollenweber displayed his usual diplomatic finesse. In complete disregard of the actual situation, he demanded an apology and tons of silver in damages from the Dutch. The other council members and burgomeisters of the Hanse were flabbergasted by Wollenweber's behavior. His colleague from Stralsund said to him, quote, I've been to many negotiations in my life, but I've never seen anyone acting like you do. If you keep banging your head against the wall, you will leave here on your posterior. End quote. Well, he did not say posterior, but this is a family show. As it happened, Wollenweber did not leave in the manner just prescribed, but on the fastest horse he could get his hands on because he had bad news from back home. Act 2, Scene 6, still Spring 1534, Lübeck. As news of Wollenweber's outrageous behavior reached Lübeck, the remaining patrician voices on the council demanded an end to all this unhanseatic nonsense. The city was broke, and this war was going nowhere. Crowds were gathering, and Wollenweber's rule would have been over had he not suddenly appeared on his exhausted steed. Because of all his faults, Wollenweber was a great orator, and by promising the world and demanding adherence to the teachings of Martin Luther, he managed to turn the tide. The masses who had just hours earlier asked for his head are now demanding that the last members of the old council leave their posts. It is from now on that Wollenweber had become a full-blown dictatorial ruler of the city. Act 2, Scene 7 Sometime in 1534, the home of Count Christopher of Oldenburg. Now one has to assume that the mercenary general, Count Christopher of Oldenburg, was seriously surprised when emissaries of the free imperial city of Lübeck showed up at his doorstep, with a truly wild plan. They are asking him whether he wants to recruit a mercenary army and conquer Denmark on behalf of the city of Lübeck and, drumroll, the deposed King Christian II. Sorry, say this again. The city of Lübeck that had fought against Christian II in three wars was to ally with this man who was locked up in the castle of Sonderburg, rendering him largely useless. And just to clarify, this Christian II was a Catholic who would be brought back to the throne by a Protestant city, a city that was a founding member of the Schmalkaldic League? How exactly was that supposed to work? The Lübeckers explain. Here is how this works. Denmark has no king at the moment. The power sits with the Council of the Realm, which is stacked with members of the high nobility. And frankly, nobody likes those. The peasants in Dutland would happily rise up against their aristocratic oppressors, 
to bring back their champion, King Christian II. Christian II, they believe, is a man of the people and a good Catholic, something the peasants appreciate a lot. And then the emissaries say they have commitments from the cities of Copenhagen and Malmo to help in the fight. They too do not like the Council of the Rhone because its members are all Catholics. The burghers, in turn, been taken in by the teachings of Martin Luther. So Christian II is their champion, because as everyone knows, he isn't really a Catholic, but secretly sympathizes with the Protestant faith. And then let's not forget that Christian II is the brother-in-law of the emperor, which must count for something. And have we mentioned that Henry VIII of England is a mate? And finally, there is a navy of Lübeck that still has control of the Baltic Sea. Nobody has more ships, except maybe if the other Hansa cities combined with the Danes and the Swedes. But that, quite frankly, would never happen. Finally, the commercial terms. Christopher and his cousin, the ex-king Christian II, get to rule Denmark and Norway. Lübeck was to be paid 400,000 guilders in compensation, is to be given the earths and castles in perpetuity, two-thirds of the tolls, and Gotland, Bornholm and Bergen to boot. Now Christopher of Oldenburg, at this point a mid-sized mercenary general, sees that the plan may be bonkers. But it may also be the greatest opportunity that had ever crossed his desk. So Christopher of Oldenburg is in, and the war is on. Act 3, Scene 1, August 1534, Jutland. The war had begun. The incursions by Marx Meyer into Holstein had expanded into a larger campaign. Christopher of Oldenburg had landed in Zeeland, and Copenhagen and Malmo had declared for Christian II. Peasants all across Denmark are in revolt. The Danish Council of the Realm now stands with its back against the wall. They did not want Christian of Schleswig-Holstein to be king, but with the realm in such turmoil, they could neither elevate the 13-year-old John nor continue with the interregnum. In their distress, they offer the crown to the Protestant Christian of Schleswig-Holstein, who from now on is Christian III of Denmark and Norway. At least technically, because he holds just parts of Denmark and nothing of Norway. But he's an experienced general and administrator, and so he gradually gets his act together. He convinces both Catholic and Protestant Danes to fight under his command against the invaders. Slowly but surely his army moves down the Jutland Peninsula and recovering Schleswig-Holstein one stronghold after the other. Act 3, Scene 2 Stockholm, the palace of Gustav Vasa Now the King of Sweden watches things closely. The idea that Denmark would become some sort of vassal of Lübeck is not much to his liking. He may hate the Danes and owe the Hansards for their help in the War of Independence, but at the same time, having these ruthless merchants so close, demanding not just their money back, but also even more access to the mineral wealth of his kingdom, that cannot be a good idea. And let's not forget that Christian II, the new champion of the Lübeck cause, is the man who had killed his father. So Gustav Vasa joins the fight on the side of King Christian III of Denmark against Lübeck and against Christian II. Act 3, Scene 3 November 1534, Lübeck. King Christian III's army has appeared before the walls of the city. Cannonballs are flying into the streets and onto the church roofs. How could that have happened? 
The war was going so well just months ago. Copenhagen and Malmö are in the hands of the Lübeck armies. But now, their own homes are on fire. Because Christian III has done the unexpected. Rather than gathering his troops to retake his capital, he had led them straight to the heart of his enemy, Lübeck. And the citizens of Lübeck had enough now. They tell Wollenweve to go out to the Danish camp and agree a ceasefire. Either that, or they go themselves, and he should find himself a swift horse to get out of here quick. On November 11, 1534, Wollenweve agrees to hand back all the places he held in Holstein and Schleswig, on condition that the siege is lifted. Christian III accepts, since this gives him free hand to regain Funen and Zeeland. Now inside the city, Wollenweve isn't removed as burgomaster, but the main institutions no longer support him. He is isolated in his office. He is isolated in his office, no longer able to raise funds or send fresh troops to his allies, the Count Christopher of Oldenburg and the cities of Copenhagen and Malmö. So in his desperation, he writes to Henry VIII and he offers him the Danish crown, if he would only send him some troops. And since he does not have the time to wait for an answer, he does the same with the Duke of Mecklenburg, but neither sends any reinforcements. Act 3, Scene 4, June 1535, Helsingburg. Despite the ceasefire, the war isn't over. Christopher of Oldenburg still has Malmö, Copenhagen, most of Zeeland and Funen, and he holds Helsingborg, the most important Danish fortress on the Öresund. That is where he concentrates his troops, his own mercenaries and the Lübecker, which includes the troops of our friend, the flamboyant Marx Meyer. And it's here where the Swedes under Gustav Vasa are headed. The two sides set up for battle. Christopher of Oldenburg and Marx Meyer have decided to face the challenge head-on, rather than hide behind the walls of Helsingborg. And the commander of the fortress city was a loyal supporter of Christian II, who had set up large cannons on top of the city walls, all aimed at the Swedes. And the smaller cannons of Helsingborg are prepared by the Danes and brought down to the battlefield, all set up and ready to fire. As the Swedes appear within cannon shot, the German Landsknechts fire their Danish guns. Now the guns have been loaded with double charges, so that rather than sending a cannonball over to the Swedes, they explode when fired, killing not just the gun crew, but many other of the Germans nearby. The extent of the treachery became clear when the aim of the cannons on the city walls is lowered. The Helsingborg garrison fires one devastating barrage after another at the Lübeckers and Oldenburgers below. Squeezed between the walls of the treacherous city of Helsingborg and the advancing Swedes, there was only one thing for the Landsknechts to do. Run. Run as fast as you can. Christopher of Oldenburg makes it to Copenhagen, where he holds out until the end of the year. Marx Meyer is captured, and despite a valiant attempt to not only flee, but also take the fortress he was imprisoned in, he ends up being tortured, beheaded and quartered. Meanwhile, the Lübeck fleet too is defeated, not just by the Danes and Swedes, but by their old Hanseatic allies, the Prussians and, oh yes, the navy of Danzig. Two Hanseatic cities' ships were exchanging fire. Act 3, Scene 5, August 1535, 
Lübeck, Rathaus. Once the news of the devastation from Helsingburg reaches the city, Jürgen Wollenweber's days are numbered. He resigns as Bürgermeister, and the members of the old council that had left the city in 1531 return and take their old seats. And as before, they do not execute the man who had created so much chaos. They offer him a role as a clerk within the city's administration and the opportunity to live out his days in peace. Act 3, Scene 6 September 24, 1537 Wolfenbüttel Did Jürgen Wollenweber end his days as a clerk, shuffling paper in a darkened office inside the splendid Rathaus of Lübeck? You bet. It is just a month after his ousting that he's back on the road, seemingly in search of new allies to support his friend Christoph of Oldenburg, who is still holding out in Copenhagen. He did not get far. Men of the Archbishop of Bremen recognize him and take him prisoner. He is brought to Rotenburg Castle, where he undergoes a first round of torture. Then he is sent over to the Archbishop's brother, the Duke of Brunswick. Neither the Archbishop nor the Duke had been involved in the conflict, but hey, that does not mean they like a populist rabble-rouser. Wollenweber admits to all and everything his torturers accuse him, including having stolen 20,000 guilders from the church treasury, wanting to unseat the new government in Lübeck, and to support the Anabaptism faith that was whipping Münster into a religious frenzy. None of that is true, well, apart from obviously he wanted to change the government in Lübeck, And as soon as the screws were off, Wollenweber denied all these allegations. Still, on September 24, 1537, on the main square in Wolfenbüttel, Jürgen Wollenweber, the most politically ambitious burgomaster of Lübeck, was hung, drawn and quartered. The end. Well, that is the end of our little play, but not really the end of the story. The end result of the Wollenweber years was a massive decline in the influence of Lübeck and the Hanse itself. The Dutch can now sail freely into the Baltic Sea. Denmark consolidates into a strong centralized Protestant kingdom after the last peasant uprising is suppressed. Sweden is heading to become a major European power whose king Gustavus Adolphus will rampage through the German lands in a 30 years war. As for Wollenweber, he became one of the most unusual figures in German historiography inasmuch that everyone claims him. The nationalists see him as an uncompromising defender of the German rule over the Baltic against the Danes and the Swedes. The communists see him as a liberator of the lower classes whose attempt to bring democracy and freedom is thwarted by the conservative establishment. And it seems the German bourgeoisie also in on the Wollenweber fan club. One of the finest restaurants in Lübeck is named after the man. Only Thomas Mann and pretty much most historians take a dim view of him. Thomas Mann was particularly irritated because the Nazis renamed the house his patrician family had occupied for a couple of hundred years into Wollenweber House. In, I think, 1942, he said, quote, The stupid rebel does not even know that a house that bears the stamp of the 18th century on its Rococo gable cannot have anything to do with the audacious mayor of the 16th. Jürgen Wollenweber had done a lot of damage to his city by the war with Denmark, and the people of Lübeck have done with him what the Germans might one day do with those who led them into this war. They have executed him. End quote. 
Now, as for my view, I think he was surely an awful diplomat. But his biggest fault was that he had put all his effort behind a political goal that was both unachievable and pointless. Closing the Ursund was so against the natural interests of the Danes and their fellow Hansards that it would never have worked for more than a brief period. And moreover, as we've already seen in the late 14th century, the Dutch weren't the problem. In many ways, they were the solution that brought about the economic boom in the second half of the 16th century. And that means the Hanse story isn't over yet. There's still at least two more episodes to come. Because even though the political unity is cracked, the cities aren't. The political leaders may clash with each other over ludicrous plans of world domination, but the merchants on the ground, they keep plowing along, building their network, expanding the reach of their trade, and making money. The cities in particular Danzig, Hamburg and Bremen are flourishing, as Lübeck and its protectionist leaders fade into the background. I hope you'll join us again. And as usual, I would like to thank my wonderful patrons who have signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com slash support. Your help is really, really appreciated. And as for bibliography, I have put the sources into the show notes. <laughs>